0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 930 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. The teaching text for today comes from 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10 but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Cornerstone. we thank you for your faithfulness to this church. Um, I just pray that as a church, we are keenly aware of your spirit. Um, I pray that as John speaks this morning, that we, um, that we truly hear every word, um, that we write um, your scripture on our hearts and just think about it throughout the week. Um, we love you, and we thank you for being good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. I'll take that one, Rich. All right. Hey, were you here last week when the wasps in this building were going insane? Seriously, I think, it was at the, I think it was at the 11 o'clock service. Zach was standing here holding the chalice, and a wasp literally landed on the edge of the chalice, and he's like, whoo, whoo, whoo. <laughs> and the wasp relocates right here on Ben's mic, and then Marcia killed it. One of the strong women of Cornerstone killing the wasps. So we had people come in and spray, and there were dead wasps everywhere this morning. It was a massacre. But I just saw a couple survivors. (laughs) Please do not distract me by doing this the whole time. I'm just going to think you're disinterested, okay? I did put the napkins on there just in case. Well, I'm glad that you're here. It's great to be together. Uh, If Cornerstone's your church... I especially want to invite you to be here in two weeks on November 24th. It's going to be a big Sunday for our church, calling it a Vision Sunday. And so, in part, we're going to share what does preaching look like next year. So, this year has been the year of the Bible. What are we going to do next year? But we're also going to share a bigger, have a bigger picture conversation about what's the next chapter in our story as a church. And so, if Cornerstone is your church, I'd love for you to be here for that. I really love preaching. I never would have guessed that I would end up a preacher. Um, my mom says it was inevitable, but I'm really, uh, I love preaching. And a lot of times, preaching's pretty easy for me. Uh, in some ways, like, I'll, I'll study, I'll, I'll, like, once I've identified a text, kick it around in my brain, And I'll go on a walk, or I'm driving in the car, and we hit an intersection, and it's like, boom, I've got the sermon. I know generally what I'm going to do. And it's like, you know, sit down and map it out on a blank piece of paper and then start typing it. And, like, the sermon just kind of appears. Those are really fun preaching weeks when that happens. Other weeks, it is not like that. Other weeks, it is laborious to type every word on the page, and it's like moving like a pile of cinder blocks from one place to another. This week was like that for me, where like I love preaching, I love writing sermons, but for whatever reason, this one was just painful, getting it together. And so I had written this sermon out of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, and honestly, it was really convoluted it was complex and i'd written this bit about like what paul was getting at about glory which i will touch on today and it felt so complex and cumbersome and i wrote this extended introduction to get you into the historical context of corinth and then to get you into paul's like rhetorical logic in second corinthians and i thought not only do i not want to preach this sermon no one wants to listen to this sermon it was a really painful one. And so yesterday at noon, feeling a bit exasperated, I told Emily, I'm throwing this sermon in the trash and starting over. And I did. And so it reminded me of, of when I was a kid. I was like, I don't know, 16, 17 years old, maybe not even 16, at Metro Christian. And um, I was gonna help lead worship at this unplugged night. I was a zealous kid. And I remember before this worship deal, I went behind the school and was praying, God, if you want to use me in any way, like, you've got permission. It's it's what we were singing this morning, openness to the Holy Spirit. And I ended up giving probably my best sermon ever, though I don't remember a word of it, like the purest sermon ever. Like, I preached spontaneously to my high school. And because I grew up in a church that did altar calls all the time, I did an altar call there on the front lawn, and people came forward, and it was really sweet. And I was just remembering that, and and it touches on some of the themes that we'll get at today that there was something pure and beautiful about being earnest and about just being open and expectant that, hey, maybe God wants to use me. Maybe he wants to use you. So I canned the whole complicated sermon yesterday, and, and we started from scratch. And I don't really like admitting it, but I have this desire as a preacher to be impressive. I really want to be polished. I want to have my points down with alliteration and they generally make sense and people end the sermon in tears. That means I've been successful. That's what I want in a sermon. Um, I want to have my best foot forward. I want to bring my best, but the truth is that a lot of times I'm just two left feet. Sometimes I'm not that impressive and I'm not that polished. Sometimes I need to be the one sitting and listening to the sermon and not the one preaching the sermon. It's not like I'm having a crisis or I'm going through a dark night of the soul. There's nothing like that. Uh, The problem is, or the reality is, that I, like all of us, am a human being and not a a machine, not a tireless creative content generator. And there's a lot of pressure that many of us feel in this age of Instagram to, to manage the image that we project to the world. Um, In the age of Instagram, we each become our own marketing department. We want to craft a narrative that leads the world to believe that we are a particular kind of person where every moment is perfectly posed and think that that's like our inner reality, that that's what life is like when we're not in front of the camera. And so we mask our frailties and we conceal our vulnerabilities in the hopes that everyone else will believe that we're the exception to the rule, even though everybody else is jacked up. I am A-OK, or that gal, that girl, that guy is A-OK. And this is just a lie. The truth is that everyone in this room and every, everyone in our church, everyone you know, bears our own insecurities and vulnerabilities. Uh, we all go to the bathroom, sometimes with microphones turned on. Uh, we all want the approval from our friends. We all want a sense of blessing from our families. We all have to make peace with the bodies that that we live in. We're all trying to make ends meet. We're all trying to discover some kind of significance and and identify our own worth. There are a ton of joys in this life, but there are also a ton of challenges. And really, challenge and and vulnerability and difficulty is the norm. And I've said before, and it's true, you, you have no idea how fragile the people to your right and your left in this room are. No matter how, what kind of commanding presence they have, you have no idea how vulnerable the people that you share a cubicle wall with really are. Um, we're, we're fragile, frail creatures. And the one place, honestly, the one place in the world where we should feel the most liberated to be conversant with our vulnerabilities, to be open about our brokenness and our failures and our struggles and our griefs in this world should be the church. Because the gospel should train, does train us and should train the church to be truth-tellers about who we really are and how we really are. Now, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We accept that to be self-evident. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own ways, Isaiah. The gospel trains us to tell the truth about our nature, that we are wandering sheep, we're broken people. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There's Hebrew 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All of us bear vulnerabilities, and in the church, this should be the safest place to be open about those vulnerabilities. Our brokenness is the great equalizer in this room, and we come to the feet of Jesus, the great dignifier, to learn how to be well to learn how to see ourselves afresh in the light of his love, and also to learn to see each other through those eyes. Because of how the gospel trains us to tell the truth about ourselves and about other people, we must resist the urge to idolize other people and demonize ourselves, or to demonize ourselves and to idolize other people. Jesus should be the only one that we place on a pedestal because we know the truth about ourselves and about each other. Now, it's funny, feeling very unpolished as a preacher this morning, uh, it's funny that Paul was dealing with basically the same issue in his letters to the Corinthians, that Paul was a manual laborer, Paul was a guy who was getting beaten up and in trouble all of the time, and Paul, I gather in person, was not that compelling of a public speaker, and so the church in Corinth had access to some really glitzy, glamorous preachers like Apollos, and they thought, Paul, like, you're all right, but we're going to put you on the, like, in the, on the back shelf. We like people like Apollos who, like, make us have goosebumps when they preach, and Paul like, like, I don't know, maybe come back if no one else can. Paul was, was wrestling with this, the sense from the Corinthians that what was most important was being externally impressive. And he appeals to them through this, this conversation that I was trying to get out of my original sermon in 2 Corinthians 3, chapter 4, as something that I think we're going we're to see fresh this morning. So in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul has this lofty conversation about glory. You may want to have your Bible open to 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. It's just a good rule of thumb. He has this convoluted conversation about glory that's a little bit difficult to track, but he's comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, which is like the law that God gave to Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai, he said that covenant came with a kind of glory, Do you remember in Exodus when we were there earlier this year, how Moses went up to Mount Sinai and there in smoke and fire the glory of God appeared to him. He received the law and when he came down to be with the people, his face was so brilliant having seen God that they couldn't bear to look at him so he put on a hoodie to veil the glory of God. And Paul's making the argument, if, if the old covenant was as glorious as this, how much more glorious is the new covenant that all of us who believe in Jesus have inherited by believing in his death and resurrection by the Holy Spirit? How much more brilliant is this covenant? How much more will we radiate with the life of God as a result of everything that God has done in Jesus? And Paul's got this great line in uh, chapter, uh, verse 18 of chapter 3. He says, We all who with unveiled or unhooded faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are all being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Moses set eyes on the image of God as God passed and it caused him to radiate. We are being transformed into this same image, not with a fading glory like Moses had, but with an ever-increasing, ever-radiating glory. That's what we are becoming. Okay, you start to think, is this about, this glory sounds pretty lofty. Like Christians are supposed to be be the most sparkling, brilliant people. And you've met some of those. I've met some of those. I was with a woman a couple of weeks ago who I thought just radiated the life of God. I thought, man, I hope that people think I'm even a little bit like that. Is Paul getting hung up on externals, on, on cosmetics? Is he ramping up the pressure for us to look glorious? Is he turning up the heat for us to busy ourselves with appearing glorious or good to the world? And I want you to see what happens in in chapter 4, which Rachel read for us. He says, but we have this treasure, this glory of God that's ever-increasing in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. You've all got like terracotta flower pots at your house. If you drop them, they're gone. They're done for. Um... Paul's using a metaphor here to talk about human frailty. This greater than Moses glory treasure is born within us in these earthy, common, breakable vessels of humanity. And we see this contrast of the radiance and the glory, the Shekinah glory of God being put in something so ordinary as human beings. And then Paul elaborates. We're hard-pressed on every side, not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It says the glory and the life of God radiates from us, but not primarily through our victories, but through our vulnerabilities. Paul's listing his own vulnerabilities and struggles and suffering. The life of God is shown not in our successes, but in our struggles, not through our superhuman ability to supersede all difficulties in life, but our patient perseverance in the midst of those predictable difficulties of life. And this beauty through brokenness demonstrates to the world what Paul says is the all-surpassing power that's from God and not from us. We have this treasure in very ordinary, cracked, broken, brittle, frail jars of clay. And when the life of God peeks through those cracks, everyone knows by looking at us from the outside, well, there's no way it's to their credit. That's not the point. He says the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And thinking about these cracks in the, in the jars of clay, the little like, uh, like spider lines of like severance that are happening in our lives, those are the cracks through which the life of God can be seen. And when people note the disparity between our external reality, which sometimes like, is, is suffering, we're all going to suffer in this life, when people note the disparity between our external reality and our internal resilience or renewal or hope, God ultimately is going to get the credit. I think about, like, like, think in your mind about times in your life where you felt the most alive. Some of you may be going through a period of suffering right now, and you're like, that is the opposite of feeling my most alive. But others of you will remember when you got a diagnosis and you were going through treatment. In you know, a weird way, you look back on it with, like, longing, in, a, in a, like, a wistful kind of way, because in that season, you were more reliant on the Holy Spirit than you'd ever been in your life. You are more interdependent with your friends and your family. There's a kind of closeness and intimacy in face of your struggle. And you long to go back to that kind of posture of need where God's grace was supplied in plenty. When there's a disparity between our external reality and the internal reality of resilience and renewal by the Holy Spirit, there's a sweetness even in the middle of struggle. I think about friends in Syria who are followers of Jesus who at this season in the life of their church would call this the golden age of the church in Syria. Well, many of them are under tremendous threat of persecution, under violence to their families, uh, pastors who are driving past bullets to get to churches, they're calling it the golden age of the church. There's an external reality that looks really rough, but there's an internal buoyancy by the Holy Spirit that's keeping them afloat and keeping them marching forward with courage. When people see the external difficulty but the internal posture of our hearts, God gets the credit. Think about this, this kid who was in the news a couple of weeks ago who's an African-American young man who was called to the witness stand. His brother had been shot and killed by a police officer. And from the stand, he, he, he gave absolution, he gave forgiveness to this woman who had shot and killed his brother and asked if he could leave the witness stand and hug this woman. Everyone said, "Huh." And God was honored. But it's not just through suffering, it's not just through difficulty, it's also through, it's also through our failures, the public ways in which we blow it. And God uses our stories to, in redemptive ways, to invite other people to know His grace. It's in the way that he redeems our failures and our stories that we find like truly God must be doing something great. And some of you here would be of the mindset that, like because of the things that you've done or you've gone through, you are disqualified from being used by God in any kind of meaningful way. And that's just utter nonsense. If he's not going to work through your story, what's he got to work with? It's by repurposing and renewing and redeeming our stories, those little cracks in the pot that the light of God shines brilliantly when we make people behave in ways that go huh God is honored Paul's got some pretty uh, cool internal logic here as so we pay attention to what he's doing in chapter 3 and chapter 4 he's got that verse 318 when we contemplate the Lord's glory we're transformed into his, into his image with an ever-increasing measure we contemplate the Lord's glory. and That contemplation leads to transformation. We are internally transformed. Paul said it in Romans 12, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. What you're contemplating, you're being renewed. And as a result of your contemplation leading to transformation, it results in glorification. God just does stuff in you and through you that you couldn't have manipulated into happening. Like, the life of God just slips out sideways when you're not even trying. How does that happen? Man, it's just the life of God, like, through, through the renewing of our minds, that we do things, we say things, and it makes people go, huh? None of, us can, none of us know when a day of suffering is going to come for us. It's going to happen. None of us know the day when we get the phone call that brings us to our knees. And you can never prepare for, for what comes You never know exactly how to prepare for the predictable suffering that we're going to experience in this life. For the most part, Emily and I have felt like we've been protected from a lot of suffering, and we're experiencing a new view of the world through what we've been through in the last couple of months as a family. But there are things that we can, we can do that make us the kind of people who are able to bear suffering, who are able to hold together so that through our suffering, the light of God might be seen, and it's through becoming the kind of people through whom Jesus can glorify himself. As so we contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed on the inside, and the life of God can't help but sneak out of us sideways. The word translated contemplate here is really interesting in 3.18, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. This is the NIV. Uh, other versions say behold. You might have a version that says reflect. And we see that this is a pretty nuanced word. The, the, the word translated contemplate can also be translated behold or reflect. And it reveals this principle, uh, this, this idea that we get in the text that what you contemplate what gets you active and sustained attention over time is ultimately what you reflect. What you contemplate, what gets you concentrated attention over time, you ultimately reflect. Or to say it a different way, you ultimately look like what you look at the most. You look like what you look at the most. So if you obsess over money, you contemplate and ruminate, you're constantly looking at money in this covetous, desirous kind of way, you're ultimately going to look like a greedy person. If you are constantly looking at and caring for your image, your image is what matters most, the self that you're projecting into the world, you are ultimately going to look like an image-obsessed, vain person. If you are obsessed with sex and sexuality and sexual acts and you, and you immerse yourself in a steady stream of looking at images and videos that like, supply that itch, you are ultimately going to look like a person, like an animal, like less than a person who's driven by their appetites. And finally, if you, if you look at power, you're constantly obsessed with controlling other people, you're ultimately going to look like a control freak. What you contemplate, you reflect, we end up looking like what we we look at in a sustained way. And Paul, in these two chapters in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, says if we look at Jesus, we will ultimately look like Jesus, and that will invite other people to see Jesus in us. If we look at Jesus, we will look like Jesus, and that will invite other people to see Jesus in us. And there'd be a temptation in, like, to, like, to start at the end, which is looking like Jesus, which is behaving in such a way that people are attracted to Jesus and you, but Paul has the opposite of that, that logic. But you don't start with the outcomes, you start with the behaviors. The behavior is, as Jesus said in John 15, remaining in him. If we, cons- if we concentrate on the person of Jesus, if we contemplate Jesus, if the stream of information being fed into our minds is like righteous, virtuous Jesus stuff, by consequence, it's what we're going to look like in the world. When we were starting Cornerstone two or three years ago, I was on the phone with a buddy of mine named Andrew, who's a church planter in the Dallas area. I said, Andrew, if you could do it all over again, what would you do? If you could start over with your church, what would you do differently? And he said, I would take a Navy SEAL-style approach to discipling the church. He said, like, don't worry about measuring the outcomes, attendance, people who raise their hand to give their life for Christ. Don't worry about measuring the outcomes. Measure the right behaviors. And he pointed me to John 15, 5. If we remain in him and he in us, as a natural consequence, we're going to bear fruit. If we remain in him and he in us, we are going to bear fruit. You can count on it. You can't help it. It's the life of God sneaking out sideways when we're not even trying. Uh, This morning we came in and because the people sprayed for bugs, there were dead wasps and yellow jackets everywhere. And Madeline was like like vacuuming them up. Madeline, you're awesome. Thank you. And over here, she was like looking for the plug. If she's doing the work of pushing the vacuum back and forth, but it's not plugged in, it's not going to go very well. So so don't worry as much about the action. Get it plugged in, and then the action's going to be way more effective. Don't worry about the outcomes. Watch the behaviors. And so as we were trying to get started as a church, we have a blank, you know, a blank slate to get started from. We just decided, well, we're going to give this a go as a church. So we're not going to do any gimmicky giveaways. We're not giving away cars. We're not giving away iPads. We're not doing door hangers. We're not doing advertising. We're not doing marketing. We're not going to, like, try to saturate the market with everything about Cornerstone. Screw that. We're going we're gonna to do our own thing. We're going to try to remain in Jesus and he in us and just trust him with fruit. It's really fun. And so we came, we cooked up this scheme we called the 330-3000 Challenge. Um, I think only, it was, it was uh, really ambitious, Okay. So, the three represented all of us who were kind of helping things get started, we were to invite three people who didn't know Jesus to come to the church as we got started, to like begin pursuing them relationally out of love. The 30 was 30 passages of scripture that we're going to like use to transform our minds and set the culture of our church as we were getting started. I'm fairly confident my mom is the only one who memorized all 30. And then the 3,000 was we want to sow 3,000 hours of prayer into the launch of this church. Now, I've learned that 3,000 is a lot of hours. And we only got to 1,000 by the time we launched as a church. Uh, But it was that effort that really kicked off our Thursday prayer, which, like, the life of prayer in our church is not a roaring flame. It's more like a steady candle. And every Thursday, there are three, four, five, six of us who just keep that candle of prayer kindled in our church. And as a mentor of mine said, a candle can still set a forest on fire. So who knows what's going to come of those prayers? but it's based on a desire to uh, remain in him as he remains in us, confident that the life of God's going to sneak out sideways and we're going to bear fruit. So all of us, like, 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 I think that few of us think that the world is going to be changed by like, people with microphones. I don't believe the world's going to be changed by people with microphones. I spend most of my time in this building, unless I'm at lunch with you, spend most of my time in this building, the people who are the most desperate to hear the good news about Jesus are people who are in your world, people who you share an office with, people who are your neighbors with, people who you're friends with. It's going to be through the ordinariness of regular people that the mission of God goes forward, and that's how it's always been true not primarily through Paul's and through Apollos, but through all the other people who are embodying the gospel in their community. The life of God sneaking out sideways as they contemplated the person of Jesus being transformed by the person of Jesus. And through the cracks and the crevices and the vulnerabilities and frailties of their lives, in their weakness, God was proven strong. God wants to use you, especially you, especially because of your story. He wants to use you. He's not disqualified you. He's qualified you by being brought into his family, rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. And so what becomes the invitation for us not to obsess about externals and metrics, but to obsess about what we're contemplating, to give our energy and our attention into remaining in Jesus and holding ourselves and each other accountable to that, confident that he's going to do his thing either way. And as I was kicking around 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, I just developed this little breath prayer. And this little, like, breath prayers are like stuff that on an inhale and an exhale, you can do the whole of the prayer. Breath prayers are ones you keep in your back pocket for when you just, like, you you need to express something to God. And if the invitation for us is to remain in Him so that we'll bear fruit, to contemplate Him so that the glory of God might be seen in us and our frailty, man, then we need to give our attention to remaining in Him. So this, this simple breath prayer, may I see more of Jesus, oh, that more of Jesus may be seen in me. This first phrase, may I see more of Jesus, is, is predicated on like the gospel reality that we can't see any more of him unless his grace beckons us, unless the Spirit's at work. Jesus said, no one can draw near to the Father unless the Father is inviting them, beckoning them. So maybe for you, you'd say, like, like, I need to start with, like, the desire. May I desire to see more of Jesus. And in desiring Jesus, may I see more of him. And in seeing more of him, may more of him be seen in me. Maybe this just becomes a prayer that narrates our lives, that you're, like, you know, standing there with a box of matches trying to get that flame within going, saying, may I see more of Jesus, that more of Jesus may be seen in me. Or if you're not there yet, may I desire to see Jesus. Like the, the apathy, the like tedium of everyday life, it's difficult to conjure up enthusiasm. So maybe you would just say, God, would you just kindle a little fire in me? Would you cause me to desire to see Jesus? Maybe you're a person who hasn't grown up around faith and church and all that stuff, and you're like trying to get interested. You have people in your world who care about it. And so you, maybe you just pray like, all right, well, if anybody's there, would you cause me to desire to see you? As I read, as I go to church, as I listen to sermon, may I see more of you, and in seeing you, may you do good work in me. And it becomes a really simple prayer. May I see more of Jesus, that more of Jesus may be seen in me. It, It occurred to me, at some point, it would probably be good to write a philosophy of preaching. Like, what's the point of preaching? It's, you know, something like 40% or 50% of our worship gatherings is, like, predominantly people sitting in rows listening to one person explain the Bible. I hope that that's what most of the preaching in our church is, is is illuminating God's Word. But I've never really written a a philosophy of preaching. But as I kicked it around this week, I thought, if I had one, it would be that, like, I hope that my sermons just make people restless, I hope that as a result of preaching in this church, that you don't feel like you've like arrived in life, but rather you feel this unction, this compulsion to go and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. this sense of like, I don't know if he's right or wrong, but I need to talk to Jesus about this. And uh, and it occurred to me, uh, there's this great bit in Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy where he asks questions for preachers. And it really tees up what I hope happens this Sunday and every Sunday when we gather around the table and when we open up the scriptures together. Willard asked these questions. He said, Must not all who speak for Christ constantly ask themselves these crucial questions? First, does the gospel I preach and teach have a natural tendency to cause the people who hear it to become full-time students of Jesus? As a result of hearing this sermon, are people more likely or less likely to go out on their own and duke it out with him in a student-teacher relationship, to apprentice themselves with Jesus? As a result of my preaching and teaching, are people more likely to go and do that? Second, would those who believe it become his apprentices as a natural next step? Is the kind of preaching we have in this church just like a one-and-done, like you've got your get-out-of-hell-free kind of car, but then you go live like a hellion the rest of your life? Or does the preaching lead you to sign up to be an apprentice of Jesus as a natural next step? And then finally, he says, what can we reasonably expect would result from people actually believing the substance of my message? And my message today is not my own, but I hope, and I hope every week it just comes from uh, the Word of God, from the Scriptures. My challenge and my invitation today for, for all of you would be, one, to identify that you're a person that God loves deeply, that He wants to inhabit through the Holy Spirit, and that the vices and the struggles and the difficulties that you face in life are not ones that He wants you to face alone. He wants to accompany you, transform you, make you to be resilient and buoyant so that you can bear up under anything. And through the brokenness and the frailty and the vulnerability of your life, through the cracks in your jar of clay, the life of God wants to shine through. So my invitation to you is to contemplate Jesus, to remain in Jesus, to become a full-time apprentice of Jesus, to make it your prayer. May I see more of Jesus, that more of Jesus may be seen in me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, just confessing that none of us can desire you apart from you planting a seed of desire in us, we just ask you to do that. That you'd stir up the apathetic, that you'd make restless the comfortable, that for those of, you who are, for those of us who are already like hungry and thirsty for you, that you would only like make them more hungry and more thirsty. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. I pray, Lord Jesus, for all of us that in desiring you, we would want to see you, that we would in our, inundate ourselves in the data stream of the gospel, that we would be deliberate about quieting social media, quieting the internet, turning off the television, and immersing ourselves in the life of God. As we read the scriptures, may you prove it to be living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, cutting us open, revealing within us our truth and our falsehood, would you help your word, which is breathed by you, to breathe life into us? May we find ourselves, like Moses, radiating, but even more so because of the truth of all you've done in Jesus. I pray for those, the people in here who feel disqualified because they're not super biblically literate, and for the people who feel disqualified because of harmful things that they've done in the past or are doing right now. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus wants to live in you by the Holy Spirit to remind you of the stuff that Jesus said so you don't have to have the whole Bible memorized. But there's an invitation for you to make yourself available today. And so maybe it would be in just praying this prayer, may I see more of Jesus, that more of Jesus may be seen in me. I'm confident as you do this, as you persevere in this, the life of God is gonna sneak out sideways and be shown to the people around you. Jesus, as we gather around the table, send the Holy Spirit to make this ordinary bread and juice something uh, extraordinary for us, a means of experiencing the life and the grace and the power of God. I pray that as we come, you'd assure us that you love us, that you'd give us a sense of our safeness in your presence, that you'd transform our minds and invite us into a life of apprenticing Jesus. I pray this in his name and to his glory.